I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. Uh, we're into the final hour of today's episode, this Monday episode of Live Mike. Uh, a little bit of a preview of things to come. We'll be speaking later on with Patrick Wiggins. Uh, you, you know Patrick Wiggins. He's the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory Solar System Ambassador to Utah. Uh, he is uh, the expert, our own expert on all things space. And uh, he and I are going to have a, an opportunity to talk about uh, this asteroid you heard so much about that uh, is going to be uh, swinging past Earth right about Election Day. And, well, there are a lot of headlines made uh, about that, and uh, Patrick Wiggins is going to set us straight in terms of the science and let us know, actually, actually, like, close is like a relative term. Uh, let's understand that relativity. So he'll, he's going <laughs> to he'll join us uh, and let us know that, yeah, it's probably unlikely that a giant asteroid from the heavens will crash into Earth on Election Day, uh, <laughs> supporting some sort of apocalyptic sign or some such thing like that. Uh, also going to have a look at some of the decisions made by colleges around the country in response to this coronavirus, shutting things down. We'll be doing so, having that chat uh, with a doctor, a friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Mobley, will join us again. But right now, I want to talk to you uh, for a time about an announcement which has come from the Trump administration. It was uh, announced just yesterday, Sunday, that the FDA has issued an emergency use authorization for uh, a certain convalescent plasma treatment. Now, uh, there are some terms that need uh, defining there. Uh, an emergency use authorization is something that comes about from the FDA from time to time <clears throat> when uh, a certain scientific task, uh, which falls under the jurisdiction of the FDA, uh, must be fast-tracked, or at least there uh, are uh, excited circumstances which which indicate uh, that fast-tracking uh, the process uh, is warranted. Now, emergency use, okay? How do you get to that point? How does the approval uh, to, to, for this practice come about? And it is uh, very basically that this, uh, this treatment uh, will cause no harm. We don't yet know about efficacy. What we are comfortable with right now is that it will cause no harm. Okay, so that's, the, that, that's the, the approval that has been given down, or I shouldn't say approval. That is the authorization uh, which has been handed down by the FDA. And what is it for? Well, it's a convalescent plasma treatment to help those who are currently hospitalized with uh, COVID-19. Convalescent plasma. Convalescent plasma is the portion of the blood which currently courses through the veins of those who have contracted, suffered from, and recovered from the coronavirus. People like Ben McAdams. In fact, uh, he let us, know, let us know the last time 
that we spoke that he was in fact participating in some studies like this. We've spoken to John and Melanie Herring, uh, who themselves, uh, some of the first Utahns to contract the coronavirus. You remember their story? Yeah, it took them from uh, Japan uh, to California to an Air Force base, ultimately uh, back to their home in Tooele County. And uh, they, because of their exposure to the coronavirus, uh, they have convalescent plasma. All right, I've rambled on enough and expl- explained enough. Now let's hear from some experts. We'll start with, well, we'll start with the president, okay? Uh, the president, as I mentioned just yesterday, announced uh, that the FDA has issued this authorization, and he uh, yesterday discussed the effectiveness of convalescent plasma. This is a uh, powerful therapy that transfuses very, very strong antibodies from the blood of recovered patients to help treat patients battling a current infection. It's had an incredible rate of success. Dr. Trump then went on to encourage people to donate. I once again urge all Americans who have recovered from the virus to go to coronavirus.gov and sign up and donate plasma today, please. Okay, so this story has made its way here to Utah. In tandem with the announcement by the FDA and the president there, uh, here in Utah, specifically within the Intermountain Healthcare Program, uh, there has been some information released. There was a uh, there was a meeting today, which uh, those participating, director of uh, the Intermountain uh, Hematologic Malignancy Department, Dr. Hoda, explains why it's important to donate plasma to help patients currently with the virus. Just want to reiterate that uh, convalescent plasma is in a nationwide short supply. As you can imagine, 70,000 patients have been infused with plasma. And now with the emergency use authorization, we expect that those numbers will go up quite um, exponentially, given the fact that now any patient at any hospital can get it without having to go through the extra work that it took um, for, you know, people under the EAP program sponsored by the clinic to, um, to get that information, to get the plasma to them. So this is potentially remarkable news. And if you are the, uh, if you are one of the, here, I've got the number here. Uh, and what is it? I'm trying to find the total number of, of Utahns who have suffered from the, the coronavirus. I had those numbers here just a moment ago. If you are one of the 49,364 Utahns uh, who have contracted and recovered uh, from the, the coronavirus. <clears throat> right now we have about 41,000 cases considered recovered. If you are one of those 41,000, this segment is for you. And the information that we're delivering here is for you because you potentially have coursing through your veins. And I should say potentially because we'll get into uh, just a moment how uh, how the benefits have not yet uh, been proven. Right now, we are studying and looking at uh, ways to extract some benefit. But if you are one of these individuals with convalescent plasma, uh, please, as you heard uh, the doctor there, plea, uh, please donate. He goes on, Dr. Hoda, to explain how donated plasma is working on patients with COVID and with trials looking at the possible benefits. As far as, you know, in the Mayo Clinic paper that has come out, we did see a significant mortality benefit in patients who got plasma, but those were specifically for high titer patients, and only 17% 
of patients in the subgroup that they looked at actually had high titer um, antibodies. And so this is why it's important to continue randomized controlled trials looking at titers and fusion of high titer plasma to see if it has benefit for patients. Jumping back up to earlier in the, the, the remarks delivered by officials at uh, Intermountain, Dr. Brandon Webb is the chair of Intermountain's COVID-19 therapeutics team, and he gave, uh, and I should have delivered this earlier, he gave a brief explanation on this convalescent plasma. Here's what Dr. Webb had to say. Recipient of convalescent plasma receives a plasma product that has high levels of antibody. They have a better outcome than a recipient of convalescent plasma who receives a product with low levels of antibody. That's very important because it helps to highlight um, the need for um, ongoing work to understand exactly uh, in which patients and in which donors convalescent plasma is likely to be most beneficial. So again, there are 41,000 plus Utahns out there who have contracted the coronavirus and recovered from it you have something in you right now that can help your fellow man. There are a few family members of mine who are in that category. I won't reveal their identities or anything like that, uh, but I can tell you that in about 30 minutes' time when this program wraps up, I'm going to give them a call, and I'm going to put them in touch uh, with the folks here, uh, the appropriate folks, to uh, receive a donation of their convalescent plasma. Last piece of audio I want to play for you here comes from Cynthia Lemus. She is a patient at Intermountain Healthcare, and she shares here how she feels after getting the convalescent plasma treatment, how she's doing now after getting treatment and released from the hospital. Feeling so much better, you know, my, my energy's back. I'm able to go throughout my day and everything. Physically, my health is great. The only setback we have right now is my lungs still, still suffering a little bit, coughing, but that was expected. They were always told me that that was most likely going to happen and just a little bit of PTSD from the hospital, but being health-wise, you know, I'm, I'm doing great and happy to be alive. Now, do we know that it was convalescent plasma that brought her to this state of recovery? No, we don't, not quite yet. But there are some preliminary findings that indicate, yeah, there's a good chance that this type of therapy could be helpful. So last time here, now before the break, let me put out the plea. If you are one of the 41,000 Utahns to have contracted, suffered from, and recovered from the coronavirus, you have a duty to help. You have a duty to help those uh, who may not be as fortunate as you and who could really use what it is you have coursing through your veins. So consider donating. Consider donating. Quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by a great friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Mobley. We're going to be talking about colleges and their decisions to cut off access to the classroom, to the athletic field. Why were these decisions made? What were the motivations behind them? And do they actually help? We'll get into those questions next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. I am very much looking forward to this next segment. In fact, we're going to jump right into it. I'm joined 
by a good friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Mobley, MobleyMD.com. And throughout the course of this coronavirus, I've been very privileged to, to, to get some of his expertise uh, shared on these airwaves from time to time. Uh, he's able to break down some of this data and, and freely express his reactions to it, both uh, uh, in terms of his expertise uh, in the medical profession and, of course, as being a doctor uh, himself and a family man. And so, uh, Dr. Mobley, with that, uh, I thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing greatly. Great to be back on the uh, program and share my thoughts with you and your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's jump right into it, and let's talk about the policies being put in place uh, in schools around the country and some of the rationale behind the decision-making. You hear uh, oftentimes uh, about decisions as to whether or not uh, classrooms are reopened. And this is both uh, in, like, the, the, the young kids' school uh, and then the, uh, the undergrad uh, level and colleges and universities. You hear many decisions being made in the name of student health. When you hear that, what do you think? Um, probably like a lot of listeners that are paying attention, I'm, I'm the one uh, you know, in the living room who's yelling at my TV and saying, kids are not at risk for COVID for the big picture of their health. So it, be, it becomes uh, very frustrating. We've got, you know, this is a rather contrarian view. So if someone's listening right now, they're going to say, well, that's not what I'm hearing on the evening news every night. But when I hear, you know, another school health, you know, a school official, administrator saying we're doing this for the students' health and safety, I just don't think that's really being well backed up by the data. And I'll give some quick numbers over the airwaves here. I know numbers can be harder to follow, you know, when you hear them versus when you see them. But according to this, I'm on CDC.gov right now talking to you. All deaths, all deaths from COVID from the age group 5 to 18, that's school-age children, all deaths. 63 deaths. Now, I'm not discounting the deaths of, of any American or any citizen, but 63 deaths out of 177,000. You can do the math yourself. That's 0.03% of all COVID deaths since this whole pandemic started and affected America have come from that school-age children group. So we're not talking about children are going to likely with any probability, we're talking statistics, not talking emotion, but with any statistical probability, school-age children are not going to die from COVID, and many of them will be positive, keyword positive, but may be completely, completely asymptomatic. To give us some comparison, 63 COVID deaths so far in the school-age group. In, the, in, a, in a typical flu season, that number can anywhere be in the high 100s up to the mid 500s. Do we cancel school every flu season because we're worried about the students' health? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. We do not. And the infectivity rate of these students is far less than has been sort of touted in local media circles because we've got some really good studies out of Australia that, that confirm that as well. Fascinating. What about those that would say to that, okay, yeah, fine, I, I know that you know, student health and I know that young kids uh, aren't impacted, but you've got to consider uh, the teachers and the administrators and the janitors and the folks who fall outside of that 5 to 18 category. Uh, sure. What about them? 100% true, and I wish that I wish we were having these conversations. You, you and I have been having these segments for months now, and I keep saying we're talking often about the wrong populations. Mm. While we're all inside quarantining, we're sort of not talking about what to do with those 70 and older with health conditions. While we're maybe keeping our kids out of school, we're not really talking about what to do for the teacher safety. And, and I don't know about you, but I mean, from what I recall when I was in grade school, K through 12, most of my teachers were young, I and mean, there were some older ones, but a, a lot of them were young. 
a lot of young people go into teaching, and you're probably looking at a fairly small subset of the teacher population that would be above a certain age, maybe 50 or 60, have health conditions, obesity, diabetes, immune system problems. Why don't we talk about ways to keep those teachers safe? Why don't, why don't they be the main ones to be in charge of remote learning? Why do, I mean, there's, there's things we could do sure. to give the overall student population a reasonable school experience and protect those at risk. All right, let's move on to sports. Uh, the Big Ten Conference, uh, as you well know, they have postponed the 2020 season. Uh, all, all sports are off at a number of universities and colleges around the country. Uh, wh- how do you react to that? Is, is it wise rationale behind these decisions, or, or is it something uh, akin to fear uh, or not wanting to go far enough or not, looking, not wanting to look like the university that was prudent enough and there's kind of this odd kind of back and forth between universities and uh, athletic conferences uh, to, to up the ante. Sure. Well, I mean, I'd ask your listeners right now as they're uh, listening to, to us talk on the radio, and I'd just have them stop for a moment and think, in the entire nation of America, which high-profile athlete has had any significant battle with COVID? I mean, you know if it occurred, it'd be on the evening news, right? Sure. So-and-so star athlete fighting for his life on a ventilator. To my knowledge, we've not seen that news story. It reminds us that athletes, because they're fit, they're not obese. Because they're not obese, they're less likely to have diabetes. They're less likely to have high blood pressure, less likely to have heart disease. They're probably going to do just fine. Who is more fit in America than a varsity college athlete? You're talking someone who's between the ages of 18 to 22 in general, who works out hours a day, does sprints, does weights. I mean, these are the fittest people in our society. Do we really think that that they're going to be at a serious health risk from this virus? It really defies all of what we know about who's at risk for COVID. And the varsity college athlete has got to be one of the fittest populations of people in our country. Well, aside from people like you and me, of course, though, you know, super, yeah, super, exactly. super humans, of course. <laughs> uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, they have, made, they, they have placed a, a giant emphasis on the need for socialization for children uh, to to develop socially and that in this isolation in this in this circumstance of isolation which has come about due to many of the policies put in place by uh, by schools uh, there have been some some negative consequences and, and, and negative is a, is a word I use uh, which is an understatement some devastating devastating consequences have taken place. Sure. I, I know firsthand some teachers who have uh, both friends and colleagues of mine in different school districts throughout the U- Utah Valley who have said that the disparity between, shall we say, upper socioeconomic children from lower socioeconomic children is being just further magnified by staying at home. In general, you're going to have a wealthier socioeconomic status. You're more likely to maybe have the luxury of having time to teach your kid at school. We're in the lower socioeconomic status. Maybe both parents are working. They can't afford as good a child care. So the gap between the, you know, the haves and the have-nots is being exacerbated. We know that we're seeing less reporting of child abuse. I have no reason to think that child abuse would be less common with the child in the home more hours per day. So what's happening? It's occurring, but the child is not in the public school system where a teacher, a counselor, a principal can identify it. So now you have child abuse most likely going up, and there's even uh, 
emerging data that you know suicides and, and other substance abuse problems are predicted to be on the rise. So, I mean, there's a lot of bad things that are going to happen to these kids who are not at risk from dying from an overall statistical point of view, but they are at risk for these real problems of abuse and disparity between rich and poor and, and falling behind in their learning. There's a lot of real things that are going to occur while we worry about this very low probability of a school-aged child succumbing to COVID. How does the medical community reconcile this? How, how do uh, people like you who have your hands on the data and see what that should be leading us to do uh, compared to what is actually being carried out in terms of policy? The lucky ones get to go on Lee Lonsbury's show every couple of weeks and try and uh, make their contrarian point of view heard by more people. But it is frustrating. I mean, there's there's clearly kind of a party line that you're supposed to toe, and if you question it, you know, you don't care about people's health and safety, and it's very you're really quick to be condemned if you kind of go against the the general wave of where the the, the group thinking is going. But there's really good data that would support kids can go back to school safely. Yes, let's protect the teachers. There's really good recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics that being in school is better than remote learning. There's really good data out of Australia that kids do not spread the virus in the school setting at near the transmission rates that we're sort of being led to believe. One Australian study showed that the transmission rate among school-aged children, those between 5 and 18, was in the range of 0.5 to 1.2%. So for your listeners out there, 1%. 1% transmission rate in the Australian public school system. Well, let's hope, let's hope that that bears true, and let's hope that we see that same thing as students here in Utah are returning to school. Dr. Mobley, uh, thank you for your time. Thanks for all this data and information and this analysis and your perspective and point of view. It's invaluable, and I welcome it uh, as often as we can get it. Thank you. It's my pleasure, and again, I hope your uh, listeners enjoy a slightly contrarian point of view for just a few minutes, and they can uh, do their own research and come to their own conclusions. That's the way. Thanks again. Uh, quick break here. When we return, we'll be joined by Patrick Wiggins. You know Patrick Wiggins? Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a sharp man. NASA, uh, JPL Solar System Ambassador to Utah. We're going to talk about an asteroid that's heading towards Earth. Yeah, scheduled to get here about Election Day. Are you afraid? Well, Mr. Wiggins is going to let you know why you really shouldn't be too afraid. Details next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.